before the Rio de Janeiro Olympic Games in 2016. Brenda Martinez competed in the U.S. Olympic track and field trials in Eugene, Oregon. Now, in 2013, she'd won a silver medal in the 800 meters of the World Championships in Moscow. So it was fair to assume that she would qualify for Rio. But the U.S. qualifying process is unforgiving. If you finish in the first three in the qualifying event, you go. If you finish outside the first three, even if you are the world record holder, you don't go. So it all hinges on the result of the race and the trials. Now, the 800 meters, that's two laps around the track. And with about 100 to go, 120, 130 meters to go, it looked as though Brenda Martinez was certain to qualify. She was running second. She hadn't even turned on the gas yet. If she was running in the 700 meters, she would have been off to Rio. It looked like she was going to win. But with about 100 meters left to go, she tripped. Or more likely, she was tripped. And she stumbled. She didn't fall over, but she stumbled and veered out into lane four. Well, with about 10 seconds of the race left, there was no way she could make up the ground that she'd lost. And she finished seventh. She would not be going to run in Rio in the 800 meters, an event in which she had a very real chance of winning a medal. Well, what would you have done if you'd been running in her running shoes? Her hopes and dreams were shattered through no fault of her own. She'd trained for years for that moment, but her chance to run in the 800 meters and maybe win a medal in Rio was stolen from her. Now, you'd think she'd feel sorry for herself, but she did not. She told reporters that she was instead focused on getting ready for the 1500 meters, the other event in which she was competing to try to qualify for Rio. She said, the track doesn't care about your feelings. You've just got to move forward. Less than a week later, Brenda Martinez ran in the 1500 meters, basically diving across the finish line to secure third place by just three one hundredths of a second and an opportunity to represent the United States in Rio. She could easily have lost focus. She could have been sucked into a vicious cycle of negative thinking. But she said, I just quickly let go of what happened in the 800 meters and got back to my routine to focusing on all the little things I could do that would give me the best chance of running well later in the week. Brenda Martinez wasn't attached to her goal of making the Olympic team in the 800 meters, or frankly, the 1500 meters. She was focused on the process. Notice what she said? She would focus, and I quote, on all the little things that I could do that would give me the best chance of running well. You see, there's a problem with goals. It's good to have them, but scientists are beginning to question whether focusing too much on goals runs counter to long-term performance and general well-being. In a Harvard Business School report titled The Systematic Side Effect of Overprescribing Goal Setting, a team of researchers from Harvard, Northwestern, and the University of Pennsylvania found that overemphasizing goals especially those based on measurable outcomes, often leads to reduced intrinsic motivation. It leads to irrational risk-taking and unethical behavior. We've seen this unfold in the real world all the time. Somebody becomes overly fixated on achieving a goal and loses sight on the reasons for setting out to accomplish it in the first place. That person becomes driven by the external rewards and recognition they hope to achieve. In some cases, They'll go to any extreme to achieve the goal. Someone might take harmful diet pills so they could lose weight. 
A writer might commit plagiarism. A sports person might use performance-enhancing drugs, banned illegal illicit drugs. We've seen that a lot. Someone fixated on the goal of getting a promotion might engage in unethical behavior in the workplace. The authors of the Harvard Business School report say that these are predictable side effects of overemphasizing goals. In my home country of New Zealand, a famous sports person passed away recently. Now, back in 1977, oh, this made the news. The New Zealand All Blacks, our national rugby team, were playing Wales in Cardiff, Wales. It looked like we were going to lose. Wales hadn't beaten us in 25 years. It's a little hard to explain what happened if you don't know the rules, so I'll just sum it up by saying our man cheated. One of the All Blacks did something more akin to what you'd see on a soccer field than in a rugby stadium, and it worked. The referee awarded our team a penalty. Our kicker kicked what we'd call here a field goal. It was 12-10 to Wales. It was now 13-12 to New Zealand, and New Zealand won 13-12. And honestly, that victory sat a little uneasily. as That's not the way we like to win. But the player responsible for the piece of questionable sportsmanship said, and I quote, you don't make excuses for wanting to win. You see, the goal was winning. That's all that mattered. And ethics went out the window, along with honor and a little bit of pride. Lance Armstrong was a cyclist who wanted to win more than he wanted to simply compete. When he saw back in the 90s that cycling was awash in cheating, he realized that if he wanted to have any hope of winning, that he'd have to cheat too. He became the best cheat, and therefore the best cyclist. A lot of cyclists were doing it. Armstrong decided he'd have to do it if he wanted to win. If you're overly goal-oriented, these things happen. And what happens once you accomplish your goal? It's not uncommon for people to drop the good habits that got them to where they were. Dieters who lose weight frequently put the weight back on if they've been fixated on a goal rather than on a process. One of the biggest challenges brought about by concentrating too much on goals is that it binds up your feelings of self-worth with things that you can't control. You want to shoot, I don't know, 72 on the golf course. Well, 72 is real good. 74, it doesn't matter what it is, but you want that score. Bad weather might make it impossible. And now what? Because of the wind, you're a lousy golfer. You had a terrible day. You're bummed because you didn't shoot a 72 or 3 or 4. It wasn't your fault. The boss who was going to promote you retires and you don't get your promotion. What then? You're going to run a marathon. It's all you want to do. But you picked up an injury. You're not able to run on the day the marathon takes place. So are you a failure now? If it's all about the goal and not about the process, you set yourself up for a fall. It's not to say everything about goals is bad. That's not true. But if you overly fixate on the goal, then you should completely disregard goals. They can give you something to aim at. I'd like to be able to do 20 push-ups, 50 push-ups, 100 push-ups. My daughter started off with a pull-up bar. I want to get to however many pull-ups it is. and looked like that was Mount Everest, but man, she just nailed it. Once you've set the goal, what do you do then? Well, it's healthiest to focus, like Brenda Martinez, the athlete did, on the process. Goal setting can serve as an effective steering mechanism, like a north star to shoot at. But after you've set your goal, 
shift your focus from the goal to the process that gives you the best chance of achieving the goal. Then you focus on how well you carry out the process. Focus on the process. Brenda Martinez chose not to worry about being tripped in the 800, but instead she made sure she did what she could. She got enough sleep. She got the right nutrition. She followed her workout plan. So getting to the Olympics would be about the process for her. Do those things right, the goal would take care of itself. I'll give you an example. A while back, I noticed one of my neighbors walking in the neighborhood. I hadn't seen him in a while, and now he's out walking. A couple of months later, I saw him walking, and Melissa was in the car with me. I said, would you look at Rodney? The brother has lost weight. Uh, I I talked to him about it the very next day. We went walking together, me, me and Rodney. I said, what have you done? He said this. John, he said, I never got into counting calories. That's a system. You become a slave to that. He said, I focused on making small changes and being consistent. He cut down on sugar. He ate less. He made sure, come what may, he got 10,000 steps in every day. Stopped eating later in the evening. He said the first 20 pounds just fell off, came off easy. He wasn't worried about the pounds, but about the process. Follow the process, things will work out okay. He said, well, you know, even if I slipped up, ate too much of the wrong food. It's the process. I'm not worried about the little bump in the road. Another friend of mine did the same thing. He knew it had taken him decades to put on 85 extra pounds. So he adopted a process and stuck to it. Got active, ate less, ate better. 85 pounds later, there were legitimately a couple of times I didn't recognize him. He wasn't worried about how fast it came off. He didn't set deadlines. He held his goals loosely. He had a target, but focused on the process rather than the target. The process that would make the goal a reality. As my neighbor says, this has become a lifestyle for me. When you're wanting to lose weight, but you haven't seen the scales tip downwards in the last couple of days, you could feel like a failure. Or you could say, I'm eating well, I'm sleeping well, I'm getting my exercise, I'm doing great. If you obsess about a promotion, the joy of being the best employee you can be in serving your employer or your customers, that joy can be forgotten. You enter a painting in the county fair, you don't win first prize. Now your painting's worthless, right? No. You remember you paint because you love painting. You did your best. You're blessed to have the talent that you have. Now, of course, I'm not here to talk to you about painting or losing weight. But I'm telling you that there are a lot of Christians who are struggling because they're focusing too much on the goal and not enough on the process. What's the goal for the Christian believer? Let me ask you, what is it? You might say the goal. Well, that's obvious. It's heaven. The goal is eternal life. I'm not going to argue with that. What did Jesus say? John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is coming back soon. Jesus said, the goal is that you be ready for my return. We want that, don't we? Yes. Of course we do. But you know what happens to many people. Far too many people say they don't think they're ready for the second coming of Jesus. People believe that if they're going to get ready for the second coming of Jesus, they have to be holy. So what do many people do? They make their goal holiness. Anything wrong with that? No. Anything wrong with that? Yes. No, because Jesus wants us to be holy. Yes, because when we make that our goal, we set up artificial rationale as to what constitutes holiness. If I'm going to be holy, then I should wear this, 
worship a certain way, uh, give so much to the Lord in tithes and offerings. Is that wrong? Most likely it's very wrong because what happens is a couple of things. One, if people fall short of their goal, I can't stop eating this thing. I lost my temper. I told a lie. They figure that they have failed. They're not going to go to heaven because they just can't get it right. Probably they're a hopeless case. But an equally insidious outcome is that people will say, I'm doing this. Check. I'm doing that. Check. I have my checklist. And because I'm checking all the boxes, I'm going to be saved. In other words, they're working their way to heaven. They're saved by their checklist, by their goals. Friend of God, we want to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. We want to be holy. We want to go to heaven. So what we focus on is the process and not the details. Of course, we know the details. We know the rights and wrongs, and we should. But now that we know the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, do we watch the clock until sunset on Friday evening or Saturday evening? Is that what we do? Or is our focus on the journey with Jesus? Because we know that it's right to pray, do we set the timer for X minutes? And when it goes off, we're satisfied that we fulfill the requirement. Oh no, come on, man. There's a better way. There's a healthier way. There is a Christian way. The biblical way. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6 and reading through to verse 7. Paul wrote, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in love and established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Now, what's the emphasis on here? The emphasis is on the walk. It's on the journey. You received Jesus, now carry on. Keep on walking. Move forward. Notice the words Paul uses. So, walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. That word, rooted, think about that. Another translation says, having been firmly rooted and now being built up. Now, the Greek word, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I will spell it for you. Can you imagine these letters as I say them to you? See the word in your mind. The word is R-H-I-Z, or or Z if it must be, O-O. R-H-I-Z-Z. There's only one of them. R-H-I-Z-O-O. Now, what does that spell? It spells in Greek, rizoo. But look at that word in your mind, R-H-I-Z-O-O. What does it look like to you? You've seen that word. That's where we get the word rhizome. A rhizome is an underground plant stem that sends out roots and shoots. Paul is saying our faith is to take deep root in the Lord and then be built up in Him. Now, if you have a garden in this summer, I hope things are going well. Oh, the Bradshaw Garden isn't going to win many awards, although we're probably going to grow some pretty spectacular basil, which is a lot like basil, only better. Uh, Our our tomatoes, I think, will end up being okay if they would just hurry. I don't know that we're going to get any eggplant this year. We're going to grow some fantastic sunflowers. If all we focus on is the goal of harvesting tomatoes and basil and, ooh, got to get the jalapenos in. Uh, They're fun to grow. If all we focus on is the 
goal of harvesting that stuff, then it's all going to be pretty desperate. Instead, we'll focus on the process. If you focus on getting the plants firmly rooted, and then if you focus on the process of watering them and feeding them, the process of protecting them from pests and so forth, ordinarily, if you follow the process when it comes to gardening, you are going to enjoy the harvest. And with gardening, I enjoy it so much, the process itself is a blessing to me. I don't like the bugs, those hornworms that tried to ravage my tomato plants. I take care of them. I don't like the bugs. I mean, you may think Bambi's cute. Not cute when he starts nipping the tops off my sunflowers. Grrr. I don't much enjoy it when the plants don't do what I figure they should do. But hey, the process itself is fantastic. Getting dirt under your fingernails and smelling the plants as they're growing and watching sunflowers grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and then begin to open up. The process of working with the soil and working with the plants and the weather. and It reminds me a lot of the process of Christian growth. What makes plants grow? Sun does and water does. Maybe fertilizer of some kind. You want to have protection so they can grow safely. You want to have them positioned right so that they'll grow well. What makes Christians grow? Well, we know the answer to that. Jesus does. Faith in God makes you grow as a disciple of Jesus. Prayer, reading the Bible causes you to grow. Sharing your faith causes you to grow. That's what makes Christians grow. And don't forget, you need to keep the pests out. So we protect the plant. We protect the believer from things such as temptation and sin. You do those things. You can't fail to grow as a believer. And you'll keep growing. Focus on getting ready for the second coming. Now, don't get me wrong. We want, we want to be ready. But focusing on that too much, focusing on being a holy too much, focusing on living a righteous life too much, and not focusing on the process of Christian growth is a huge destructive mistake. I'll tell you something about our garden. Now, the Bradshaws love sunflowers, both Melissa, my wife, and me. We love them. And what is it that sunflowers are known for? Well, they're known for being happy and big and bright and sunflower seeds. What they're really known for is heliotropism. Oh, yeah. Heliotropism, that's moving in the direction of the sun. When the blooms are younger, they'll turn east in the morning to face the sunrise. They'll track the sun across the sky and they'll face west at sunset. During the night, they'll turn back to the east. So they're ready to meet the sun at sunrise. It's interesting. Researchers think that sunflowers may operate on a circadian rhythm, just like humans. We had one sunflower plant last year that did something I've never seen a plant do before. The whole plant turned to face the sunrise. The whole plant turned to face the sunset. The entire, it was kind of a bush, it wasn't just a one stem. The whole thing turned and followed the sun across the sky. At the end of the day, the leaves themselves turned in the direction of the sunset. Then overnight, turn back, rinse and repeat. Now, somebody might tell me that all sunflowers do that. I don't know. But it was, it was exaggerated with this variety. Now, that sunflower speaks to me, friend, and I hope 
to you. We can learn something from these beautiful plants. Question, how much of you is turning to face Jesus? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Yeah, good. But you have more than just eyes. Do you turn to face Jesus only on the day of worship? Your intellect faces towards him. That's good. You believe that there is a God. You believe that he forgives you. You believe that there's a heaven. Oh, that's good. But does your wallet turn to face Jesus? Take a look at your credit card statement. Does that turn to face Jesus? There are people hearing me right now who spend more on cable and satellite TV or on cell service than they give to God. In that case, you're fooling yourself. You might be in a church facing the front, but not facing Jesus. There are some people who worship God in church, but at home they worship their stomach. Some people call themselves Sabbath keepers. And yet the first thing they do when church is over is drive to a restaurant to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. No, that's not Sabbath keeping. And the fact that your friends do it doesn't make it right. Your head might be turning towards Jesus, but the rest of you isn't. Learn something from the sunflower. If my directness offends you, I would be very happy if it meant that you are spurred to thoughtful reflection and prayer and repentance. My friend, you're not getting out of here without turning to embrace Jesus. None of us are getting out of here without turning in His direction and soaking up as much of the sun that shines from Him as we can soak up. You might be saying, God bless you and happy Sabbath. And then when you're on your own, you're visiting websites that you should be staying away from. Come on now. That doesn't need to happen in your experience. I know what addiction is like. Don't think I don't. I know what it's like to be hooked on something, attached to something, welded to something. But I also know from experience that the Bible is true when God says, my grace is sufficient for you. God can deliver you from any of that. It's the process that we want. What sort of believer are you? If you were hearing me and you are saying in your heart, I'm falling short. There are areas in my life where God is calling me to come up higher. Then that's a good thing. Not a good thing that you're falling short, a good thing that you know it and recognize it. And I suggest that you want to do something about it. Even if you are falling down in an area I've mentioned, God isn't condemning you. No way. He is instead prodding your thinking and appealing to you to turn and to grow, to repent, to turn again. In the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 40, Jeremiah laments. He speaks of the sin of Judah, but then he says, let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. He was dealing with a prodigiously wicked people, but he said, let's turn again to the Lord. That's what you do. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You turn again to the Lord. That's part of the process too, because faith isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. Even when you fall, you turn to the Lord because that's what you do. You've seen athletes run and fall and get up and win. God doesn't want you to despair. God doesn't want you to quit. 
We keep on turning to God, just like that sunflower turns to face the sun. The sunflower does it every single day. Did you ever meet a sunflower that had a bad day and then said, well, I'm not going to turn to the sun today. The sunflower never says, I'm sure that old sun doesn't want me turning in its direction. It turns to the sun because the sun gives life. We turn to Jesus because he, she that hath the Son of God hath life. 1 John 5 and verse 12. We turn and we turn again. We read God's word. We get it in our minds. We read it some more. We pray and we pray again. And if it seems as though our prayers aren't getting answered, we pray anyway because we know that God is listening. Salvation isn't dependent on your success or failure. Salvation is all about Jesus living his life in you. I imagine you having a conversation with Jesus saying, Jesus, listen to me. I need you to live your life in me. I keep stumbling on this thing. I keep falling on that thing. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. I'm not proud. I need you to do something about it. I need you to take my heart for I cannot give it. Keep it pure because I cannot keep it for you. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of your love can flow through my soul. Now let me switch directions a little bit and talk about evangelism. Shall we do that? Let me say this. As we discuss evangelism, let let, let me move on to, to suggest this to you. Evangelism is like gardening. Jesus used agriculture to describe evangelism many times. If you're a child of God, you'll have a process. You could have a goal. I'm going to win two people to Christ this year. I'm going to share my faith with five people this week. That's good. In as much as it signals intent, a desire. But what you're really going to do is win as many as the Lord allows. You're going to pray for divine appointments and ask God for the wisdom to know them as they come along. And then you'll share your faith with as many as you can. If you get to share Jesus with one, great, 10, fabulous, nobody, well, that would be on God because you are praying and asking for opportunity. If you get to share your faith with 50, we'll take what God gives us. But we will tell God that we are willing and we'll go with that. You hear people say, I've been witnessing for years and I don't know what became of it. You know, a friend at our office here, one of our field representatives, told, told me this fabulous story. He was visiting with a retired physician just fairly recently. Now, this retired physician told him he got a phone call from a woman, didn't recognize the voice, did nothing. Are you Dr. So-and-so? Yes, I am, he replied. Now, she told him that when she was a little girl, 60 years ago, 60, her family and the doctor's family were neighbors. She said, I never forgot my mother telling us that you and your wife were Seventh-day Adventists and that you kept the Sabbath and that you were very nice people. She spoke highly of you. Then one of the families moved away. I think it was the doctor's family. I don't remember. And that was that, except she said, lately I've learned some things in the Bible. I've been reading about the Sabbath and I want to keep the Sabbath. And I've been thinking about giving my life to Jesus fully and completely. 
And remembering that you were such a fine Christian man, I wanted to ask you for advice and to see if you could answer my questions. How powerful is that? She looked him up online. Oh, he's no longer where he used to live. Oh, where is he? She found him. At least she thought she did. She figured out how to reach him. She called him. His witness from 60 years earlier still spoke to this little girl's heart. Now she's a grown-up lady. Come on, friend. Be what you be. Do what you do. And follow the process. If you share literature, share it. If you engage people in conversation, converse. Do so. If you put out literature, put it out. A friend of mine who lived in a place where there were lots of church members decided that they needed to put up literature racks. This man was in his 90s. In his 90s. They got literature from us here at It Is Written and from other places. So he is filling up the literature rack. While he's there, there's a man kind of standing by, just sort of waiting for him to finish. So he gets in a conversation. Hey, what you doing? Oh, are you wanting some of these? Yes, I'm waiting for the. The young man talks about how he's living a life he's not proud of. And he tells my elderly friend that he needs God in his life. They talk. The older man says, well, how would you like to study the Bible? He takes studies right there. It's, it's in a public place. He accepts this invitation. The young man keeps studying and his life was changed, transformed. How many 90-year-olds are looking for souls? I know the answer. The answer is not enough. Whatever age you are, if you put yourself in God's hands to be used, God will use you. You know, the servant of the Lord wrote about how Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. You remember that, don't you? Uh, Ministry of Healing, page 143. But do you know what she wrote next? You know what she wrote next? Here it is. Listen to this. There is need of coming close to the people by personal effort. If less time were given to sermonizing and more time were spent in personal ministry, I'm going to say that again. If less time were given to sermonizing and more time were spent in, what was that? Personal ministry, greater results would be seen. The poor are to be relieved. The sick cared for. The sorrowing and the bereaved comforted. The ignorant instructed. The inexperienced counseled. We are to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. Accompanied by the power of persuasion, the power of prayer, and the power of the love of God. Listen, this work will not, cannot be without fruit. Come on and say amen. There it is. In evangelism and witnessing, follow the process. And it will not, cannot be without fruit. Follow the process. If you win one, two, none, just keep working it in faith. You want to go to heaven. I am glad. You don't get there by a checklist. Jesus is the checklist. But someone's saying, but Paul talked about a crown of righteousness. Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There's the goal. But in the same chapter, he said that he wanted to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings 
being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. The very next verse, verse 12, he says he follows after, which can be translated press on. Come on, friend, press on. Follow the process. Press on. The devil wants to turn you out of the way, but you may press on. You're not strong enough? That's okay. God has strength for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness, God said. You keep on making mistakes. Jesus is able to keep you from falling. Jude verse 24. You've sinned again. God is ready to forgive and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Friend, this is a troubled time. It's time to turn your eyes on Jesus and fix them there. People so anxious about COVID-19. Oh, I'm not saying I'm not serious. But a believer didn't have to be anxious for anything. Because you remember the Bible saying in Philippians 4 and verse 6, be anxious for nothing. You see some of what's going on in society, on your street, in your neighborhood. You're angry. But you're not going to allow that to upend your experience because you remember that Paul wrote, It is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So you know that God's got this. He has you. Presidential election. Everybody up in arms about the election result. Half the country is going to be upset no matter what the election result was going to be. But you don't have to be up in arms about a election, a election, a election result. Because you're going to be an example of what God's grace can do. Because you remember that Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You're not sure what to do about the sin which seems to be so deeply entrenched and ingrained in your life. You don't know what to do about that. But you remember that somebody wrote, through an appreciation of the character of Christ, Through communion with him, sin will become hateful to you. Pause on that. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Laying aside the weight and the sin which so easily besets us. But you're saying, oh man, besets me. The thing is strangling me, drowning me. What do I do? You heard what I just said from the book, The Desire of Ages, page 668. Through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with him. In other words, You're fixing your eyes on Jesus. Sin will become hateful to you. Powerful. And so you say, God's got it all worked out. God is going to uphold me. Come on, friend. We're going to get out of here soon. God wants you to be saved. He wants you in heaven with him. He wants you in an earth made new. He has a mansion in heaven with your name on the front door. So we're reminded that the wise man once wrote, my son Give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. There's a decision that needs to be made and it needs to be made now. Will you give God your heart? Come on, forget about the performance issues. Forget about that. Yeah, but what about my drinking? No, no, just forget about that right now. God's not going to forget about it. I'm saying forget about that right now. Because if you don't, you'll let that become a barrier between you and Jesus. Either you're going to say it's too big, it gets in the way, or you're going to say... Uh, I don't want to give it up. So forget about that. We'll leave the drinking. We'll leave the addiction. We'll leave the lust. 
We'll leave the, the, the bad language and the, I don't know what, the fault finding. We'll leave that all to one side. The pride, we'll leave that to one side. And we'll say, Lord, I want you to take my heart. Because what he takes, he makes new. If Jesus moves into your heart, he's going to make it new. You remember Jesus went into the temple one day. You ever think about this? He went into the temple one day. He said, oh, no, get these things hence. He fashioned a cord with some, uh, sorry, a whip with some cords that he found. Is that a wave in his thing? He went and he turned over the money changers' tables. It uh, said that my house will be a house of prayer, but you all have made it a den of thieves. Did you ever wonder why they ran from Jesus? Oh, someone says, because he was angry. Jesus wasn't threatening anyone. Jesus wasn't about to whack anyone. Jesus wasn't an angry man going nuts. Wasn't losing his cool. He was very together. Why'd they run? How about you go to the nearest casino, uh, just for academic purposes, and turn over the money changers' tables. Turn over the roulette wheel. Go down to where they play blackjack. Turn that over. Oh, yeah. Get these things hence. Well, they're going to get you to a jail cell, and it won't work out well. Why did Jesus not end up in a jail cell? Why didn't someone just come and whack Jesus? You know, they whacked him later on in his life. They weren't afraid to whack him. Why didn't someone walk up to Jesus and smack him and drag him out? Throw him out of that temple and say, don't come around here making this mess. My question is a serious question. I'll give you a serious answer. I, f- I found the answer in the book, The Desire of Ages. The author said that those people fled, and I quote, from the condemnation of his presence. So what does a sinner need in her life, his life, to make all things right? Yeah, you just answered the question. You need the presence of Jesus. Now, this is Christianity for big boys and big girls of all ages. The presence of Jesus is where it's at, where the rubber meets the road. We need him in our hearts. Jesus, come into my heart. My son, give me your heart. Let your eyes observe my ways. I'm focusing on the second coming of Jesus. I want to live eternally. I want to reflect the character of Jesus. I want to be in heaven. I want to be ready when Christ comes back. How? Jesus in the heart. The process of receiving Jesus and walking with him and in him. Do you like Jesus in your heart? No, no. I know you want Jesus in your heart. Let's pray and tell God that very thing right now. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your blessing, for your son Jesus. We pray for Jesus in our hearts, minds, and lives, in our homes and in our churches. We pray for Jesus. We want to go to heaven. Of course we do. But if we just focus on heaven, it's not going to work out well. Give us grace to focus on the process. We thank you for Jesus in our hearts every day. Change us every day. Make us more like you every day. We thank you. We praise you. Our hope is in you, friend. Would you accept Jesus? Raise your hand. You want him in your heart? Raise your hand. It doesn't matter where you are, at home, in a church, doesn't matter. Do you want Jesus? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Lord, I want Jesus in my heart. We thank you today. We love you. 
we praise you. We accept you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Happy Sabbath. Thank you for allowing me to spend this time with you. May God always live in your heart. Thank you.